This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable on PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. Chapter 7, Denying God's Predictable Sanctions in History. And meanwhile, it, the common grace order, must run its course within the uncertainties of the mutually conditioning principles of common grace and common curse, prosperity and adversity being experienced in a manner largely unpredictable because of the inscrutable sovereignty of the divine will that dispenses them in mysterious ways. Meredith G. Klein, 1978 There is no better way for a Christian to proclaim his own personal and cultural irresponsibility in history than to proclaim the mystery of God's specific revelation. Mystery is defined as man's permanent ignorance. Mystery cannot be overcome. It does exist, of course. Quote, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29.29 Notice that mystery and biblical law are contrasted. The impenetrable mysteries of God are not to discourage us, but because we have his revealed law. But in denying the legitimacy of biblical law in New Testament times, modern antinomians are implicitly, and sometimes explicitly, substituting mystery in law's place. This can lead to mysticism personal withdrawal into the interior recesses of one's incommunicable consciousness, escape religion. It can also lead to antinomian Pentecostalism, direct authoritative messages from God to a few uniquely gifted leaders, spokesmen in history, point two of the biblical covenant, messages that replace God's law, since God's law is no longer binding. That this, power religion, leads again and again to ecclesiastical tyranny, should surprise no one. In either case, there is an increase of personal irresponsibility. To classify as one of the secret things of God, the idea of God's predictable sanctions in history requires a leap of faith. The question is, is such a leap of faith biblical? Or is the Old Testament's message of God's predictable sanctions in history itself part of our covenantal legacy from God, meaning those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In the Old Covenant, the sins of priests and kings could subject the society to God's negative sanctions, Leviticus 4. Christian theologians believe that God no longer brings negative sanctions against society because of the unintentional sins of his priests, although he did do this under the Old Covenant, Leviticus 4, 1-3. They might admit that certain kinds of sins by national political leaders could bring negative sanctions, but probably not God's. But their rejection of God's historical negative corporate sanctions in history is more broadly conceived than this. The vast majority of Bible-affirming theologians today assume that there has been a radical New Covenant break from Old Covenant citizenship. They assume, though seldom if ever attempt to prove exegetically, that the Old Covenant's close links between the social rewards of covenant-keeping and the social cursings of covenant-breaking are no longer operative in the New Covenant order. More than this, they are supposedly, there are supposedly no predictable covenantal sanctions in New Covenant history, meaning no sanctions applied in terms of biblical law. Meredith G. Klein and his disciples argue that God does not bring predictable covenantal sanctions against the social order at all i.e., that the historical sanctions in the New Covenant era are random from covenant-keeping man's point of view. God's sanctions are mysterious. What readers may not immediately recognize is that such an argument is a cover for a very different ethical conclusion, namely, that historical sanctions should therefore be imposed in terms of some rival system of social theory. There must always be sanctions in society, imposed by the state, the family, the market, and numerous other associations. The five covenantal questions are, one, who establishes these sanctions? Two, what agent or agency enforces them? Three, what is the moral foundation of these sanctions? Four, 
What sanctions apply to which acts? 5. Does the society prosper and expand its influence when these sanctions are enforced? To say that the Bible does not provide this covenant order in the New Testament era is to say that, that some other covenant is legitimate for society. But the opponents of biblical covenant social order never dare to admit this. They hide their implicit call for the establishment of some other covenantal standard in the language of ethical neutrality or judicial randomness. But there is no ethical neutrality. So, are God's sanctions in history really random, covenantally speaking? In order to get a proper perspective on this question, let us consider the teachings of two of the most significant theologians and culture transformers in history, Augustine and Calvin. Augustine. Augustine's City of God discusses God's historical sanctions against individuals exactly where such a discussion should appear, in chapter 20, on the Last Judgment. He therefore relates sanctions to general eschatology. He begins with a summary of the traditional creed, quote, that Christ shall come from heaven to judge quick and dead, unquote. He asserts that men and devils are punished in this life and the next. He then limits himself to a discussion of the final judgment, quote, because in it there shall be no room for the ignorant questioning why this wicked person is happy and that righteous man unhappy, unquote. What ignorant questioning does he have in mind? He begins with a presupposition regarding individuals in history, quote, for we do not know by what judgment of God this good man is poor and that bad man is rich, unquote. He lists a whole series of these apparent contradictions between righteous behavior and external adversity. Quote, but who can collect or enumerate all the contrasts of this kind? Unquote. What we must conclude, he insists, is that, quote, rather on this account are God's judgments unsearchable and his ways past finding out. Unquote. He cites Paul. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out? Romans 11:33b. He cites Ecclesiastes on the vanity of life, concluding that the calamities and delusions of this life and the shifting nature of the present time in which there is nothing substantial, nothing lasting. Unquote. But in these days of vanity, it makes an important difference whether he resists or yields to the truth and whether he is destitute of true piety or a partaker of it. Important not so far as regards the acquirement of the blessings or the evasions of the calamities of this transitory and vain life, but in connection with the future judgment which shall make over to good men good things, and to bad men bad things, in permanent inalienable possession. End quote. How inscrutable are God's sanctions? Augustine's view of God's final sanctions is individualistic rather than historical. He focuses on the coming judgment of individuals, which will be rigorously governed by ethical cause and effect, in contrast to the inscrutable outcome of personal ethics in history. Later in this chapter, he refers to the 73rd Psalm, Asaph's description of his former mental dilemma. If I cite this psalm in its entirety since it is a single unit expressing one message, namely, the long-term predictability of God's sanctions in history. A Psalm of Asaph Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, and but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is their knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued, and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, 
Then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh. So, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant, I was at a, as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart, and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all thy works. Having described the dilemma of the seeming prosperity of the wicked, Augustine then adds, quote, For in the last judgment it shall not be so. Unquote. The problem is, this psalm makes it clear that there is no dilemma. God simply takes time to destroy the wicked. He gives them enough rope to hang themselves. He allows them to build up their evil so that he can punish them even more. This procedure is true in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Paul favorably cites Proverbs 25.22, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Romans 12.20 God places covenant breakers on slippery places. Their prosperity in history is temporary. He who fails to understand this, the psalmist says, is foolish, ignorant, and like a beast. Rhetoric The emphasis of the Old Testament is the transition from wrath to grace in history. This is not to say that it completely ignores God's negative sanctions on the Day of Judgment, but surely this is not emphasized. Thus, to interpret Psalm 73 as if it were a psalm about the inscrutable prosperity of the wicked throughout history, with the emphasis on God's post-historical judgment, misses the point. The psalmist is describing history. On average, covenant breakers are eventually brought under God's negative sanctions in history. But we must not expect to see instant sanctions. God is sometimes merciful to sinners, not giving them what they deserve. He sometimes also allows them extra time to fill their historical cup of wrath to the brim, just as he did with the Amorites. Genesis 15:16. Is Augustine's view of the biblical view of God's historical sanctions? What of the supposed inscrutability of God's historical sanctions? Doesn't the Bible affirm this inscrutability? With respect to any given individual, sometimes. With respect to covenanted corporate groups, no. What Augustine failed to consider in this section on God's final judgment is what his entire book is about. God's negative historical sanctions against the city of Rome because of Rome's paganism and moral debauchery. It should be clear why he focused on individuals in chapter 20. He was explicitly dealing with God's final judgment against individuals, not God's historic judgments against corporate entities. With respect to covenantal history, Augustine's City of God has served as the most important document in church history. He makes it clear that God brings negative historical sanctions against all imitations of Christ's kingdom in history. They cannot survive in their rebellion against God. The city of God is not brought under comparable negative judgments in history. It continues to the end of time, while God cuts down pagan kingdoms one by one. This is why Augustine was at the very least implicitly postmillennial. God's kingdom in history wins by default. The rival cities of man collapse one by one. Calvin Because Calvin wrote the single most effective theological summary in the history of the Church, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, its readers have tended to ignore the enormous compendium of writings that constitute his life's work. The 22 volumes of Bible commentaries published by Baker Bookhouse only skim the surface of his total output. Much of his work has yet to be translated from the Latin. His 200-plus sermons on Deuteronomy appeared in English in the late 16th century and were promptly forgotten.
Yet it is here, in his sermons on Deuteronomy, that we find the heart of Calvin's covenantal theology. It is in Deuteronomy that God's covenant is presented most comprehensively. What is the nature of social change? This is the question of modern social theory. Humanist scholars usually focus on the perceived dualism between mind and matter, ideas versus the environment as the primary interaction leading to social development. The Bible, in contrast, focuses on the question of ethics, covenant-keeping versus covenant-breaking. This raises the key issue in biblical social theory, God's sanctions in history. Calvin's view of history was straightforward. God brings his sanctions, blessings, and curses in the midst of history in terms of each man's obedience to his law. Each man reaps in history what he sows in history. Calvin did not qualify this statement in any significant way, and he repeated the same sentiment over and over in his sermons on Deuteronomy. Quote, For if any one of us should reckon up what he has suffered all the days of his life, and then examine the state of David or Abraham, doubtless he will find himself to be in a better state than, than were these holy fathers. For they, as the Apostle says, Hebrews 11.13, only saw things afar off things that are right before our eyes. We have therefore have a much more excellent estate than they had who lived under the law. This is the difference of which I speak, which needed to be supplied by God because of the imperfection, lack of completion, that was in the doctrine concerning the revelation of the heavenly life, which the fathers only knew by outward tokens, although they were dear to God. Now that Jesus Christ has come down to us and shown us how, we ought to follow him by suffering many afflictions, as it is told us, Matthew 16.24, Romans 8.29, in bearing poverty and reproach and all such like things, and to be short, that our life must be, as it were, a kind of death, since we know all this, and the infinite power of God is uttered in his raising up Jesus Christ from death and in his exalting him to glory of heaven, should we not take from this a good courage? Should not this sweeten all the afflictions we can suffer? Do we not have cause to rejoice in the midst of our sorrows? End quote. Calvin then called for Christians to obey God's law, just as the patriarchs were required to obey to secure their blessings. Quote, Let us note, then, that if the patriarchs were more blessed by God than we are concerning this present life, we ought not to wonder at it at all, for the reason for it is apparent. But no matter how things go, yet is this saying of St. Paul always verified, that the fear of God holds promise not only for the life to come, but also for this present life. 1 Timothy 4.8 Let us therefore walk in obedience to God, and then we can be assured that he will show himself a father to us. Yea, even in the maintenance of our bodies, at least as far as concerns keeping and preserving us in peace, delivering us from all evils, and providing us for us our necessities, God, I say, will make us to feel his blessing in all these things so that we walk in his fear. End quote. Historical Sanctions for Individuals Calvin was not speaking merely of the great sweeping movements in mankind's history. He was speaking of the small things of each man's life. There is orderliness in a man's life because there is a coherent, predictable relationship between obedience and blessings. God does not limit his covenantal blessings to the afterlife. Quote, Let us therefore be persuaded that our lives will always be accursed unless we return to this point whereto Moses leads us, namely, to hearken to the voice of our God, to be thereby moved and continually confirmed in the fact that he cares for our salvation, and not only for the eternal salvation of our persons, but also for the maintenance of our state in this earthly life, to make us taste at it present of his love and goodness in such a way as may content and suffice us, waiting till we may have our fill thereof and behold face to face that which we are now constrained to look upon as it were through a glass and in the dark. 1 Corinthians 13.12 That is one more thing we ought to remember from this text, where it is said that we will be blessed if we hearken to the voice of the Lord our God. This is to be applied to all parts of our lives. For example, when a man wishes to prosper in his own person, that is, he desires to employ himself in the service of God 
and to obtain some grace so that he may not be unprofitable in this life, but that God may be honored by him, let him think thus to himself, quote, Lord, I am yours, dispose of me as you will, here I am, ready to obey you, unquote. This is the place at which we must begin if we desire God to guide us and create in us the disposition to serve him, so that his blessings may appear and lighten upon us and upon our persons, so it is concerning every man's household. The same thing is true concerning cattle, food, and all other things. For we see here, in this text, that nothing is forgotten, and God meant to make us to perceive his infinite goodness in that he declares that he will deal with our smallest affairs which one of our own equals would be loath to meddle with. If we have a friend, we should be very loath indeed, and ashamed to use his help unless it were in a matter of great importance. But we see here that God goes into our sheepfolds and into the stalls of our cattle and oxen, and he goes into our fields, and he cares for all other things as well. Since we see him abase himself thus far, shouldn't we be ravished to honor him and to magnify his bounty? End quote. Calvin was not only persuaded of the corporate cause and effect relationship between the obedience to God's law and blessings in history, he was persuaded of the individual's connection. In this sense, he went beyond Augustine. For Calvin, God's sanctions are not inscrutable. Given enough time, they can be seen to conform to his covenantal promises in Deuteronomy 28. Just two generations after Calvin died, the Puritans of New England began to apply Calvin's view of covenantal sanctions. They began their errand into the wilderness to build a city on a hill. They expected God visibly to bless their efforts, making them an example to the world, assuming that their heirs remained covenantally faithful. They didn't, which had been the Founders' greatest fear. The Founders hoped that New England would become the base of a worldwide covenantal revival. There were both theonomic and postmillennial. Have Calvin's modern disciples retained their commitment to Calvin's doctrine of God's individual sanctions in history? Have they even taken seriously Augustine's view on God's corporate sanctions in history? My conclusion? No. In abandoning both Augustine and Calvin, they have also abandoned faith in the possibility of devising a distinctly Christian social theory. Muther's Unleaven, Common Grace Pay close attention to the explicit arguments of Reformed theologian John R. Muther. His essay appears in the Quarterly Magazine of Reformed Theological Seminary. Seminary magazines are aimed at donors and potential donors. If you are trying to raise funds from conventional Christian laymen, you do not publish radical articles. Muther's views are quite conventional in contemporary Reformed circles, indeed in most Christian circles. Muther's view of God's sanctions in history is representative of all pessimillennial theology, but especially common grace amillennialism. He has distinguished himself by spelling out in detail what the presuppositions and implications of pessimillennialism are in the field of Christian social ethics. His forthrightness is to be commended, even if his theology is not very commendable. His colleagues have been far more reticent to speak. The Church's Exile, Yet God's Inscrutability Muther speaks of the New Testament era as a period of exile for the Church. This is the language of pessimillennialism. Simultaneously, he speaks of God's random sanctions. Quote, Our exile has no guarantees, few securities. It affords no occasion for triumphalism. We have no promise from God regarding our cultural achievements. Unlike the promises to the holy nation of Israel in the Old Testament, the common grace state possesses no special guarantees of a material blessing as a reward for its obedience to the law of God. Rather, prosperity and adversity are experienced unpredictably through the inscrutable sovereignty of God's will. End quote. Here is the familiar theme of Klein's common grace amillennialism, the inscrutability of God in history. Muther asserts the indeterminate nature of the New Covenant's era's sanctions. Quote, Things may improve, things may get worse. Common grace ebbs and flows throughout history. End quote. This is an important admission on the part of this disciple of Klein's. The exile con condition of the church in history is based on God's random sanctions. 
What I argue here and in my book on Common Grace is that all amillennialists are in fact exile theologians. They believe that God brings negative sanctions against his covenant people in history no matter what they do. Van Til said that these negative sanctions will grow progressively worse. Klein, the optimist, insists only that there can be no victory of Christianity in history. Christians are in a cultural whole, and there is no reason to believe that God will ever pull us out of it in history. Van Til's version is, really bad news ahead, whereas Klein's is, bad news ahead, with occasional culturally insignificant soon-overcome victories. Why say, then, that there are no guarantees in history? If you argue that history develops or fails to develop in a particular way, you are asserting a guaranteed scenario. If you are a Calvinist and therefore believe in God's providential control of history, you have to believe in guarantees. Muther systematically misleads his readers when he says that there are no guarantees in history. Quote, Our exile has no guarantees. Unquote. Of course there are guarantees. If the church is in a condition of permanent exile, we have a guarantee, no deliverance in history. The language of no guarantees is the language of neutrality. Neutrality is a myth, here as everywhere. There can be no neutrality in millennial speculation. Muther is a pessimillennialist, although he nowhere mentions this crucial fact in his essay. Van Til also neglected to mention this same eschatological commitment in his Unleavened Essays. For all but the postmillennialists, that is, for all forms of pessimillennialism, there are indeed God-given guarantees, guarantees of historical cultural failure for Christians in general and the Church specifically. There is nothing random about exile. Muther's theology of cultural defeat is self-conscious, for he thoroughly understands exactly what his pessimillennialism implies. Quote, First, we cannot get caught up in the things of this world. This world is penultimate. It will pass away, and so we must eagerly await the new world to come. End quote. He goes on, quote, The church in this world, in other words, is a people in exile. We are far short of the kingdom of God. The church is called to suffer in this world. End quote. From this we can legitimately infer what is never stated publicly by these defenders of Christianity's cultural impotence in history. Covenant breakers are not incomparable exile, and are not called to suffer nearly so much as the church is. Muther's Total Discontinuity, Final Judgment What is most significant about Muller's essay is, in terms of social theory is that he clearly asserts a radical discontinuity between what he calls the coming kingdom and this world of church history. Quote, The kingdom of God will come from above, and not made with human hands and no cultural activity, redeemed or unredeemed, will carry over into the new order. End quote. This is a consistent and inescapable assertion of the common grace amillennialism's worldview, the self-conscious denial of the eternal cultural relevance of anything men do in history. All of mankind's cultural efforts are completely doomed, whether produced by covenant keepers or covenant breakers. If this were the case, the works of covenant keepers and the works of covenant breakers would be equal in historical impact. There would be no cultural earnest, no cultural down payment by God, in history. God will pull victory out of the jaws of covenant breakers at the last day. Christians could then learn nothing culturally from their experiences in history that will carry over into the final state, although Muther and his many common grace colleagues never put things so bluntly. Except for the personal salvation of individuals, History for them resembles what Macbeth said it is, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. This view of church history is why modern Calvinism is not covenantal. It is individualistic. History for the amillennialist has meaning only as a means of distinguishing the saved from the lost in eternity. This is why amillennial Presbyterianism is basically an odd sect of Baptists that baptizes babies. It is congregationalism with national committees. The Non-Lessons of History Let us think about Muther's assertions for a few moments. If we can learn nothing of eternal value culturally from history, since nothing of cultural value carries over into the resurrected state, then how can we have any confidence 
that we can learn anything useful regarding the success or failure of personal ethics in history. If Christian social efforts in history are as devoid of eternal significance as those of non-Christians, a variant of the familiar neutrality hypothesis, then why not also Christians' personal ethical efforts? If there is no covenantal relationship between our cultural efforts in history and our rewards in history, then on what basis can we expect to discover a covenantal relationship between our personal ethical efforts and rewards in history? Furthermore, what about our familistic and our ecclesiastical corporate efforts? Why single out politics as an area of Christianity's necessary historic irrelevance and impotence? Why not also include the church and the family? Muther does not mention this obvious implication of his theology of God's random historical sanctions. Neither do his common grace amillennial peers. This would be too much for most Christians to swallow. Quote, pessimism, yes, but not that much pessimism. End quote. To say that all our corporate institutional efforts are doomed would be to commit theological suicide in full public view, and no one wants to do this. So, they verbally concentrate on politics and culture, even though their pessimistic worldview cannot in principle be separated from all other covenantal and social institutions. The critics of Christian Reconstruction imply, and sometimes explicitly state, that the primary concern of Christian Reconstructionists is political, even though we consistently deny this. My slogan is, Politics Fourth. Muther, for example, calls his opponents political utopians. Why do these critics of theonomy persist in this misrepresentation? I contend that it is because their theological strategy is to call people's attention away from their comprehensive denial of Christianity's social relevance. They can readily sell their anti-theocratic views to people raised on the humanistic theology of pluralism, but they do not want to pursue the logic of their position to its inescapable conclusion, the historical irrelevance of Christianity for both the church and the family. Thus, our affirmation of the relevance of the Bible for the civil covenant becomes the focus of their attempted refutations, ignoring the fact that this very affirmation is inextricably entwined with our affirmation of the relevance of the Bible for church, family, and everything else. For rhetorical purposes, offensive, these anti-covenantal theologians and pastors attack our covenantal political stand. For equally rhetorical purposes, defensive, they remain prudently silent about the connection between our view of the covenant and all other areas of society. They want to deny the covenantal relevance of Christianity for politics, while implicitly retaining faith in the covenantal relevance of Christianity for other institutions. They cannot do this logically or theologically, but they attempt it anyway. It makes for good editorial copy. It also makes for incoherent book-length studies. Hence, they refuse to write book-length studies. They refuse to say how their view of God's sanctions in history relates to social theory. This is why they offer no social theory. Progressive Institutional Sanctification The assumption of a radical historical discontinuity, this world versus the next, is the theological foundation of the denial of progressive institutional sanctification in history. This view is promoted by amillennialists with respect to the entire post-resurrection era, and by premillennialists with respect to the area prior to Christ's physical return to earth in order to establish a millennial kingdom. We owe a debt of thanks to Muther for saying so clearly what his common grace peers have tended to muddle so systematically. He makes plain the theological and emotional foundations of the theology of cultural defeat. An amillennialist who denied this discontinuity was Anthony Hokema. He understood where such a view of history leads, complete skepticism regarding the usefulness of any attempt to reform society. Hokema asked, quote, is, there, is there, however, also some cultural continuity between this world and the next? Is there any sense in which we today can already be working for that better world? Can we say that some of the pr products of culture which we enjoy today will still be with us in God's bright tomorrow, end quote. Here is his answer, quote, I believe we can. The new earth which is coming will not be an absolutely new creation, but a renewal of the present earth. That being the case, there will be continuity as well as discontinuity between our present culture and the culture. If so, it will be called, still be called, of the world to come, end quote.
Hokuma understood the social implications of this position. Quote, what all this means is that we must un- indeed be working for a better world now, that our efforts in this life toward bringing the kingdom of Christ to fuller manifestation are of eternal significance. End quote. Notice, however, that he did not say historical significance. As an amillennialist, he did not believe that these reform efforts will ever be successful. Nevertheless, in typical hold-the-fort-boys, progressively-bad-news-for-future-Christian-man fashion, he optimistically proclaimed the usefulness of our mission. Quote, our mission work, our attempt to further a distinctively Christian culture, will have value not only for this world, but even for the world to come. End quote. He should have written this, quote, Our mission work, our attempt to further a distinctively Christian culture, will have value not only for the world to come, but even for this world. End quote. But, he would, but he would have sounded like a Christian Reconstructionist. Nobody at Calvin Seminary wants to sound like a Christian Reconstructionist. Muther, as an advocate of Meredith G. Klein's random news for future Christian man view of history, will have none of this. It is just too post-millennial for him to accept. Theologically, he is correct. Hokuma's language here is the language of post-millennial continuity, but it camouflages a Manichean view of history. As I keep saying, chapter after chapter, this is schizophrenic. It is also intellectually dishonest. Muther's Verbal Ledger Domain Muther's language of God's historical inscrutability of this world's historical open-endedness is a carefully contrived delusion, an example of verbal ledger domain. On the one hand, he says that the church is an in-exile in history. This is a permanent condition. It is guaranteed by a Calvinistic, predestinating, totally sovereign God. On the other hand, he asserts that God's ethical randomness is manifested in history. Quote, Things may improve, things may get worse. Common grace ebbs and flows throughout history. End quote. He defines exile as an indeterminate condition in which things may get better or may get worse, yet on average stay pretty much the same throughout New Covenant history. Would you like to construct an ethical system or social philosophy in terms of this view of history? How about a theory of business? or technology. No, neither would anyone else. This assertion of indeterminacy, as I have already argued, is a contrived illusion. If God applied his sanctions randomly, then the institutional covenantal outcome would hardly be random. It would be perverse. Covenant breakers would retain control over culture throughout church history, despite the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ to the right hand of God the Father. But this is precisely what Calvinist amillennialists say must happen. It is predestined by God this way. Klein, Muther, and the random sanctions amillennialists are all bearers of bad news. A flatline eschatology in a world presently dominated by covenant breakers is bad news. It is also difficult to defend exegetically. No eschatological position that I am aware of has ever been defended exegetically which asserts the existence of what is in effect a horizontal flatline for the social and cultural efforts of Christianity in history. Without exception, systematic theologians have argued that the Church's influence will either decline over time until Jesus comes again, or else increase. There is no millennial neutrality. Common grace does not ebb and flow apart from history's directionality, either inclining or declining. Like an electronic sine wave on a screen, Common grace does indeed oscillate around a linear development, but this linear relationship is not flat. It is inclined over time, either up, post-millennialism, or down, traditional amillennialism, and church-age dispensational premillennialism. I assume that Muther, as a seminary professor, must know this, yet he refuses to mention it in his essay. In this sense, he follows the tradition of Meredith Klein, who has also steadfastly refused to, for well over a decade to pursue in print the implications of his theory of God's random sanctions in history. A Progressing Church At this point, I need to raise a fundamental issue, the question of the Church's advance in history. No Orthodox theologian would ever argue that the Church did not advance culturally from, say, the year 100 to 325. 
Pietistic Protestants might argue that everything after Constantine went downhill until the Protestant Reformation, but not before then. Question. Was the Protestant Reformation an advance in history? If so, how can an amillennialist account for this progress? Culturally, I know of no scholar who would seriously argue that Christianity's influence on medieval culture was overwhelmingly negative compared with what preceded it, unless the historian, following Gibbon and rejecting Augustine, blames the supposed tragedy of the fall of Rome on the rise of Christianity. The prevailing view of modern historians, whether Christians or non-Christians, is that there was cultural and technological progress in the Middle Ages, and that much of this progress can be attributed to Christianity. They all accept Augustine's defense of linear history as a major legacy to Western civilization. The problem for the amillennialist and the premillennialist is to identify when the decline from Christian social order began. There was cultural advance for centuries after AD 100, possibly for many centuries. Why and how must the prophesied decline be regarded as permanent prior to Jesus' second coming? Why can't there be a great reversal? What biblical passage implies that the decline we have seen cannot be turned around during the next thousand years? There has been Christian cultural advance in the past. Why not in the future? There will be no cultural victory of the gospel in history, Mr. Muther insists. There will always be suffering in exile. Quote, it is not always pleasant, he says, to suffer in exile. End quote. Not always pleasant? For psychologically normal people, it is never pleasant. Quote, it may seem much better to live with the confidence of the utopians, but that is a false and unbiblical confidence. End quote. Somehow I suspect that when he says Christian utopians, he means the Christian reconstructionists. But as the seminary's librarian, he knows only too well what might happen were he to mention any of us by name, book, and page number. It might get a few of his brighter students to start reading the works of those whom he criticizes so confidently so he refuses to say just exactly who he has in mind. Extreme politeness, in this case, is extreme prudence. His prudence was quite obviously insufficiently extreme, as this chapter indicates. He will get caught anyway. Bright students always find out. A system of rigged justice. Here is what Klein and his disciples really believe. In order to keep the church suppressed in history, God does not apply his sanctions according to the covenantal standards in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Why not? Because the randomness of God's historical sanctions would guarantee the non-neutrality of the outcome, since God's non-neutrality, covenantal faithfulness, ensures the victory of his covenant people in history. But wait, is it merely neutral or random for God to prevent the visible outcomes that he specified in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28? Can God go from visible covenantal faithfulness to visible randomness without becoming visibly covenantally unfaithful in history? Not if neutrality is a myth, but as Klein and his disciples know, Van Til proved biblically that neutrality is a myth. So, what they are really saying is that God holds his finger on the scales of justice so that covenant breakers can maintain both cultural and judicial control throughout history. In short, According to the historical judicial criteria of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God externally rewards covenant breakers in history far more than they deserve, and he curses his covenant people far more than they deserve. Thus, Muther's language of God's judicial neutrality is a smokescreen. Random historical sanctions means a rigged system of justice, rigged against covenant keepers. Hayek on Equality F.A. Hayek has discussed the idea of equality before the law as contrasted with equality of results. The defender of personal liberty insists on the need for equality before the law in order to reduce the arbitrariness of the tyrant. The socialist insists on equality of outcomes. These two ideals of equality are in total opposition. His argument is extremely important for a discussion of biblical ethics since the most fundamental principle governing biblical civil justice is that God is not a respecter of persons. This is repeated over and over in the Bible. Ye shall not respect persons in judgment, but ye shall hear the small as well as the great, 
ye shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's, and the cause that is too hard for you, bring it unto me, and I will hear it. Deuteronomy 1.17 Thou shalt not rest judgment, thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise, and pervert the words of the righteous. Deuteronomy 16.19 Wherefore, now let the fear of the Lord be upon you, take heed and do it. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. Second Chronicles 19.7 These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to have respect of persons in judgment. Proverbs 24.23 To have respect of persons is not good. For a piece of bread, that man will transgress. Proverbs 28.21 For there is no respect of persons with God. Romans 2.11 and ye, masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Neither is there respect of persons with him. Ephesians 6, nine. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Colossians 3.25 But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. James 2.9 then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Acts 10.34 In short, God applies his standards of justice impartially, and so should the civil magistrate. Keeping this permanent New Testament ju judicial principle in mind, consider Hayek's warning. Quote, From the fact that people are very different, it follows that, if we treat them equally, the result must be inequality in their actual position and that the only way to place them on an equal position would be to treat them differently. Equality before the law and material equality are therefore not only different but are in conf conflict with each other, and we can achieve either the one or the other, but not both at the same time. The equality before the law which freedom requires leads to material inequality. End quote. Hayek is saying that if the legal basis of the inequality of economic results is formal judicial equality before the law, then the defense of inequality must be made in terms of both the legitimacy and necessity of predictable judicial sanctions, equally applied. I doubt that Professors Klein and Muther would disagree with this. I also presume that any Christian who opposes socialism would agree. Finally, I believe that most Christians oppose socialism. Why, then, have they adopted a view of God's sanctions in history that is the same as the socialist view of civil justice, the denial of equality before the law? Answer, their pessimillennialism. Is God a respecter of persons? I come now to my most important conclusion in this book. By denying God's predictable sanctions in history, Christian theologians are attributing to God a blatant disregard of his own principle of civil justice, equality before the law. Exodus 12.49 They are saying that God's judgments in history produce the covenantal equivalent of socialism, equality of results. This is why I argue that amillennialism, even in its best interpretation, is Manichean. So is premillennialism. In such a view, civilization is, at best, morally indeterminate. This means that righteousness gets stalemated by the new covenant, if in fact it does not lose. The equality of results is precisely what Muther is arguing for. He argues, first, that Christianity does not triumph over its rivals in history. At best, Christianity gains a stalemate, but even this is illusory. Christianity does not have a stalemate today. It is under humanism's judicial and cultural authority. Pluralism guarantees this. Second, he insists that there is no difference in eternity between the cultural results of covenant-keeping in history and covenant-breaking. If he is correct in these two assertions, then God Almighty is treating covenant keepers differently from covenant breakers. He is rigging his sanctions in new covenant history against them. In order for his sanctions to be unpredictable to mankind, they have to be unequally applied. The historical outcome of God's system of rewards and punishments in history is not inscrutable for the pessimillennialists. The supposed inscrutability of God's historical sanctions guarantees a highly predictable, that is, inevitable, outcome, the defeat of Christianity in history. This is what pessimillennialism teaches. This system of judicial sanctions is not merely random, it is ethically perverse. 
God is said to reward covenant breakers with external success, even if they break his covenant laws. And he drives covenant keepers into exile, even if they remain faithful to the terms of his covenant. It was not this way in the Old Testament, these theologians are forced to admit. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. But it is today. These are the inescapable ethical implications of common grace on millennialism, yet its defenders refuse to admit this. Such a frank admission apparently hurts too much. Also, it would make it difficult to gain new recruits, and they do not have many followers as it is. Calling Christians to a life of guaranteed cultural frustration is not a good way to gain disciples, especially activists. Why would anyone believe in such a perverse system of justice? Because a person must believe this if he defends a pessimillennial eschatology. Bad people win despite the gospel and God's historical sanctions. The ethical non-neutrality of the outcome of the work of the gospel in history is the fundamental presupposition of all pessimillennialism. Bad fruit does not come from good trees. Similarly, bad results do not come from neutral sanctions. Conclusion, these amillennial sanctions are neither random nor neutral. God's historical sanctions must be rigged against Christianity in order for covenant breakers to maintain cultural control. For evil to triumph in history, God must refuse to reward his covenant-keeping people and also refuse to retard the efforts of covenant breakers. Pessimillennialists have therefore implicitly rewritten the second commandment. For the Lord thy God is not a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the third, the children unto thousands of generations of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto the third and fourth generation of them that love me and keep my commandments. Muther is not alone in this view of the God's providence and the church's future. This outlook, God's inscrutability unto cultural irrelevance, is in fact an eschatology of of inevitable historical defeat. Dispensational theology teaches the same thing about the cultural efforts of Christians during the so-called Church Age. An exception, the premillennialist who has adopted Van Til's even more pessimistic vision. But Muther's view is worse. For being both Calvinistic and amillennial, it offers no hope for Christians in history, not even the rapture. Applying Rush Dooney's dictum, John R. Muther is basically a premillennialist without earthly hope. Where is his exegesis? Two additional comments are in order regarding Muther's theological position. First, his view of God's inscrutable sanctions in history is precisely what needs to be demonstrated exegetically, not merely asserted authoritatively. Muther does not even attempt such a task, in this essay or in a book-length study. Neither had his seminary colleagues at the time of publication of Muther's essay in the summer of 1990, 17 years after the publication of Rushduni's Institutes of Biblical Law, 13 years after the publication of Bonson's Theonomy and Christian Ethics. Prudence can be abused. Second, Muther does not cite a single book, author, or theological tradition in the essay. He cites only two Bible verses. One is Jeremiah 29.7. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. This is precisely what the Christian Reconstructionist would advise to those in cultural captivity, but he would deny that this captivity period is permanent in history. Surely it was temporary under the Old Covenant. Muther, in contrast, sees the cultural exile of Christians as a permanent historical condition. In short, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has removed from covenantal history a glorious promise of God to his people under the Old Covenant. Quote, and he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off. Then they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. Micah 4, 3-4 This was God's covenantal guarantee. Muther does not tell us why or how Christ's resurrection removed this guarantee. He simply assumes that this is what happened. He expects the reader to accept his unsupported assumptions and assertions on their own merit. In short, he refuses to debate. He simply declares from on high, 
or at least from Orlando, Florida, what God does in history and what the church can expect, irrespective of what God's word says that he has done in history or will do in history. This is not scholarship. This is not theological inquiry. This is hit-and-run propaganda in the name of Jesus. Yet this is what most Christian laymen have been subjected to for well over a century. Academic Silence That Professor Muther's essay should appear in a seminary's promotional magazine should surprise no one. The utter bankruptcy of Christian social theology today, for this is exactly what his essay is, Social Theology, has left Christians without any intellectual defenses against the comprehensive claims of the humanist world. Bible-affirming seminaries continue to encourage the situation. This has been going on for a long time. Theologically liberal seminaries promote liberal, activist, deeply political humanism in the name of Jesus, while conservative seminaries promote political passivity and covenantal silence. Me Too pluralist humanism in the name of Jesus. The first side promotes the power religion, while the second side promotes the escape religion. Understandably, both sides are outraged by the idea of the reconstruction of society based on biblical law. These critics have intermittently attempted to dismiss the writings of the Christian Reconstructionists in a series, unfootnoted, three-page essays and brief book reviews. They have steadfastly refused to challenge us line by line, doctrine by doctrine, implication by implication. Yet they propose no cultural alternatives to secular humanism. Problem. You can't beat something with nothing. They fully understand this principle, so they recommend our toleration of the general culture of secular humanism. The absence of published alternatives. Let me make what I believe is an important observation. Christian Reconstruction is at long last gaining a hearing because it presents a consistent position. It possesses a unified worldview. Its authors take this worldview and apply it to real-world issues. We are not afraid to follow the implications of our position, both logically and in terms of applied theology. We have published over a hundred volumes of books and scholarly journals stating our position. We will publish many more. In contrast, our theological opponents, both Calvinists and Arminians, are unwilling to present their developed theological position before the general public. There has not been a systematic theology written by a major Calvinist scholar since Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, 1941. It is generally regarded as quite conventional, having added no fresh insights to Dutch amillennial theology. Many seminarians are still being assigned Charles Hodge's three-volume Systematics, published in 1873. Can you imagine any other academic discipline that still relies on a codifying text written well over a century earlier? Meanwhile, in the dispensational camp, Lewis Sperry Schaeffer's Systematic Theology, 1948, was taken out of print several years ago. Only an expurgated version remains. In any case, it is doubtful that many scholars ever relied heavily on the eight-volume original. We find very few references to it in the books written by other dispensational authors. Dispensationalism has relied on books written in the early 1950s to defend the position, such as Pentecost's Things to Come. This is indicative of a stagnant intellectual system. Dispensationalism is in transition. It is unlikely that whatever emerges will resemble Schofield's original system, with its sharp discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants and its total rejection of biblical law. Furthermore, even these older works systematically refrain from applying any of their theological principles to real-world problems. This is a theological tradition stretching back to the end of the 17th century. Both Protestant and Roman Catholic casuistry died as a field of Christian ethics after 1700. Thus, those who oppose Christian Reconstruction do not possess a developed body of materials to offer as an alternative. They are in a, the position of fighting something with nothing. Yet they give the illusion of possessing a published heritage behind them that serves as the foundation of a comprehensive challenge to both theonomy and secular humanism. The leaders all know that they are holding an empty book bag, but they never admit this to their followers. But word is getting out among those who read. There is no published Protestant alternative to the comprehensive worldview of Christian Reconstruction. This is why our critics keep losing their brightest students to our camp. The pessimillennialists cannot beat something with nothing.
Conclusion What prompted Muther's article? The theological errors of certain utopians, he says, unidentified Christian utopians who promote a reconstructed republic patterned after the civil law of Old Testament Israel. Can you guess who these authors might be? These error-promoting people recommend that Christians pick up the sword to achieve a political goal. Paul calls civil government the sword, Romans 13.4, so there is no way to involve oneself with politics apart from trying to pick up the sword. This does not seem to have occurred to Professor Muther. He calls this error-laden impulse political utopianism and theocratic utopianism. Was Old Covenant Israel also utopian? Did God impose utopian standards on Israel? If not, then why is it that a similar set of standards is illegitimate today? What is it that makes our task so utopian? Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ somehow irrelevant culturally? Is the presence of the Holy Spirit somehow irrelevant culturally? Are Christians less culturally empowered today than the Israelites were? When amillennialists at long last address these questions, we will have a much better understanding of the theological foundations of their eschatological system. We will know how seriously to take it. Until then, however, there is not much reason to take seriously Mr. Muther's accusation of Christian Reconstruction's utopianism. Ever since the demise of New England Puritanism in the late 17th century, Protestant theology has ignored the fundamental covenantal issue of God's historical sanctions. The theologians of the 20th century have been adamant. There are no predictable covenantal sanctions in history. This is an aspect of the myth of neutrality. But there is no neutrality. There are always covenant sanctions in history. Therefore, what the denial of God's predictable covenant sanctions in history really means is this, an affirmation of Satan's exclusive predictable covenantal sanctions in history, meaning blessings for covenant breakers and cursings for covenant keepers. A few common grace amillennial theologians have tried to hide the implications of their eschatology. They have said that the sanctions in New Testament history are random, but then they speak of the church's exile, which brings us back to the issue of negative sanctions in history. They do not want to be identified as men who have, in fact, adopted a perverse imitation of postmillennialism, the progressive triumph in history of Satan's comprehensive kingdom civilization. This is not the way they want to put it, but it is exactly what their system implies. On the surface, however, this sounds bad. Frankly, it is bad. To cover themselves, they adopt the language of randomness and inscrutability in self-defense. This is the language of neutrality. What these theologians need is biblical exegesis. They need to answer the three sets of questions. First, how can common grace amillennialism be defended? If common grace is being withdrawn, Van Til's view, how can God's blessings to the lost increase? How do the lost gain and retain power in history, which they need in order to subdue Christian culture? If, on the other hand, common grace is not being withdrawn, then what connection does common grace have with biblical ethics? What connection does it have with special, soul-saving grace? If common grace neither expands nor contracts in response to the Holy Spirit's gift of special grace in history, what does common grace have to do with history? It had a lot to do with history before the cross. What does it have to do with history today? Explain, please. Use the Bible to defend your answers, please. No more unsupported pronouncements from on high. Second, how can amillennialism be anything but pessimistic with respect to the future of the church? If God's sanctions are random, then history is, at best, a flat line. But covenant breakers today control most of the world. An extension of present trends keeps the church in a condition of permanent historical exile. In other words, how can there be such a thing as optimistic amillennialism? Isn't optimistic amillennialism a form of soft-core postmillennialism? Explain, please. Use the Bible to defend your answers, please. Third, how can the amillennial version of common grace present God's historical sanctions as essentially random, or at least inscrutable, in a world in which the cultural leaven of covenant-keeping is supposedly being overcome progressively by the more powerful leaven of covenant-breaking. Such a world is clearly not ethically random. It is merely ethically perverse. History is either moving downward into the void or upward toward the heavenly Jerusalem. This is what millennialism teaches. 
So how can God's covenant sanctions in this common grace world be random? Explain, please. Use the Bible to defend your answers. These are fundamental questions that the common grace amillennialists have steadfastly ignored for over 50 years. It is time for them to produce some biblical theology. We have seen more than enough unsupported assertions. It is time for them to clarify their position. There is nothing clear about it yet. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.